Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. I'm Kelvin. I'm Pat. And I'm Joshua. And this is Get Off My World. It's a Doctor Who podcast brought to you by three <coughs> middle-aged dudes who love to talk about our favorite show, and we also do our best to love the new series, too. And got something for us, Pat? Uh, yes, because as our listeners know, we start each of our shows with a round we like to call Temporal Grace, mm. where we all just groove on something that we love in the Doctor Who universe. So I'll start this week. Uh, this is a cute little thing that I found on the internet. Uh, there is a page at the BBC site, the BBC Doctor Who site. It's a little quiz. Uh, I think it's just four questions or something. Uh, you test your Doctor Who knowledge by deciphering these emoji plots and guessing the episodes. You know, so it's uh, it's a little difficult to describe on radio, uh, but what it is is a linear sequence of uh, small emoji characters like faces and dogs and fishies and SOS signs and little houses and things like that arranged in a sequence that will mimic a plot from uh, one of the new series episodes and I'm not going to tell you what they are because people should just go to the site and look for it for themselves and we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, I got I think one of the four by the way. So they're wow. they're a bit challenging but I in my defense I don't remember a lot of the Russell Davies years. I was slightly concerned this was going to turn into something like uh, Victor Borgia's pronounced punctuation bit. <laughs> <laughs> you like try and pronounce a new This is a frequent concern of Kelvin's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Victor Borgia did that fifty years ago. We got we, we got to come up with something fresh. <laughs> well, a while back on uh, this Twitter feed, I like to follow who, who SFX, which goes into like a lot of detailed tweeting uh, images of behind the scenes stuff of various uh, Doctor Who uh, stories. Uh, a few weeks ago, they actually did the TV movie. And there was a real uh, interesting picture of Sylvester McCoy and Paul McGann together when they were filming the regeneration scene uh, on the morgue table. Because it's it's Sylvester McCoy's face morphing into Paul McGann's, but they do it in like the weird, distorty kind of way. And uh, it was actually, I guess, rather tricky to film because they had to be in like exactly the same position and do the exact same exaggerated facial expressions. So it's Paul McGann trying to <laughs> trying to follow <laughs> Sylvester McCoy and his broad vaudevillian <laughs> facial rubber face, rubber yeah. face stuff. <laughs> so it was like, you know, Paul McGann had to like be there on set to like study Sylvester McCoy's grimacing <laughs> and everything. And so there's this kind of great picture of just sort of Paul McGann like with his face like about six inches away from Sylvester McCoy's face, and they're both like laughing really hard. <laughs> Well, guys, I'm going to use uh, this temporal grace to tell you that I'm doing another podcast. <gasps> uh, so you, you swine! <laughs> you, you can't be You're mad. Bound to, you cheat! You can't be mad because it's temporal grace. Um, oh yeah. Oh, okay. 
<laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah. Your yeah. anger doesn't work. <laughs> and I've been trying to think of a way to selfishly plug this podcast. So I, uh, there has to be some Doctor Who connection. It's a podcast about old radio shows that I'm doing with one of our previous guests, Mr. Tim Uren, and a local uh, actor, uh, writer named Eric Webster. And I'm like, there's got, I've got to find a Doctor Who connection. So I've been going through these old radio shows, looking up, you know, the history to talk about it for these podcasts. And I'm like, this is just, it's never going to work. And then uh, the third podcast I listened to was one that uh, was chosen by Tim and is a little outside of our timeline. It's a BBC Vincent Price from the 70s called The Price of Fear, in nice. which Vincent Price plays himself getting in all these horrible situations, and he remains totally cool, and he totally acts like Miss Vincent Price the entire time. Um, but it's not a game show. It's not a game show. The, <laughs> the Price of Fear would be a great one. It's like, like I get to see you know, Vincent Price. Okay, <laughs> let's spin the big money wheel. <laughs> All right, I hope we don't have any of the same listeners because I'm going to steal that joke for the other podcast. <laughs> and I'm not going to give you credit. But so there's this horrific story of a guy being eaten by an octopus, and I'm, <laughs> I get to the end, and they are going through the credits of this episode of Vincent Price, The Price of Fear. And they list Vincent Price, some other woman, some other guy, and... Christopher Bidmead. Wow. And it's nice. literally the last word of this episode, Christopher Bidmead. And so I go and look it up, and Christopher Bidmead was originally an actor and did a lot of TV and radio show in the 70s. So wow. um, they didn't say who was who. I'm hoping it was Christopher Bidmead who played the Italian guy named Luigi who was eaten by an octopus. Because <laughs> that, that would be, be awesome. awesome. Yes. <laughs> But we'll never know. So Christopher Bidme worked at Vincent Price. There's always a Doctor Who connection. Yeah. Never give up. <laughs> never give up. It's been around too much. There's been too many actors in it. So for round two of this podcast, mm -hmm. uh, our special topics Dalek round, I yes. believe Kelvin that it's your turn to ask us a question. It, Make it a real stumper. It most certainly is. This probably reflects my mindset of late, but uh, I would like us to pair each doctor with what we think their favorite alcoholic beverage would be. First, I, I think the first doctor is a dry sherry. Sure. Uh, something very, very old British guy type beverage. Yep. You can see the second doctor going to something far more hobo-like. He's drinking something out of a paper, yeah. paper bag. I don't know if they had Mad Dog 2020 in England, but... <laughs> I, I, I could see... That, I don't know, the second Doctor like just makes me think of Guinness for some reason. Sure, he's an earthier kind of guy. Yeah. I mean, the third Doctor is... Dancing is, jigs, you know, I guess. <laughs> yeah. The, the third Doctor is going to be a James Bond-style snob. Mm -hmm. He's going to be drinking some particular... Bordeaux from an alternate version of 1945 <laughs> France that you can so, only get in the second to the left so, timeline. Yeah, after, but, but wine yeah. and the Nazis won the war, but this too. wine is great. Yeah, I think he's a wine guy. Okay. Well, I mean, Tom's got to be a Guinness guy, though, right? Tom, Tom would be. Yeah, yeah. The fourth Doctor would be pints of some kind because he does kind of have that scene in the in the fake uh, pub in the Android invasion. Where he drinks ginger beer. And he and Romana drink wine in City of Death, if I'm remembering right. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but that, that's got to be Romana. I mean, I think she talked yes. him into it. Yeah. I think he'd He's be like, 16 pints of lager, please. <laughs> so I've got to go out drink Shane McGowan over here. <laughs> Good luck. Peter Davison's clearly a Pim's Cup. Yeah. Something you would have watching cricket. Yeah. Pim's Cup it Pim's is. Pim's Cup. I, I totally get that. Sixth, sixth Doctor is is uh, Singapore slang. <laughs> yes. Yeah, or, so, some some crazy over the top beverage with stuff sticking out of it. Singapore sling is the yeah. dog's breakfast of cocktails. It's wonderful in it, but it it's like everything in it. If you look mm. at the recipe, you're like, there's Benedictine in the what? Singapore sling. <laughs> there is. It's, Benedictine. You oh, need man. to buy like seven different types of spirits to make it. Seventh Doctor. Seventh Doctor is kind of tricky. Uh, He's a Scotch yeah, guy. Yeah, I was just gonna say. Yeah, Scotch. I was gonna say like like a very petite glass. Yeah, and it would be a yeah. Scotch that he went back in time, stole, <laughs> aged, then went back and got it like two seconds later. <laughs> well, let's have some of Robert the Bruce's <laughs> private reserve, shall we? Yeah. Um, Eighth Doctor is gonna be a. Eighth Doctor is a, a. I think white wine. Early Eighth Doctor is the guy who just probably drink whatever you put in front of him and lose track. He'd just be talking. Yeah. Oh, what is like, this? What am I drinking? <laughs> These shoes! They fit perfectly! Okay, uh, I, I, I have... This is going to be a fairly controversial decision. Ooh. But I think the War Doctor, it's a tiki drink of some kind. <laughs> Justify this. Because in Only the Monstrous, he seems really fond of those fruit juice <laughs> drinks that Rejoice gives him. That's true. He is, uh, goes into unusual depth about... Yeah. And, and, and I think it might be like his, his little um, respite from the horrors of, of the Time War would be, you know, big-ass fruity drinks. <laughs> you don't think he'd just go straight for the jugs of moonshine to blot out the horrible memories? <laughs> and and would that take him back to the barn he was raised in? I'm sure his Gallifreyan parents were moonshiners. It could go either way. I, I, I have a feeling, I, I, I don't know, I, I would like to think that he's not 100% dark and miserable. No, it's, that, you know, it's just, just his benders. It, when yeah. he goes on his benders. Yeah. yeah, he clearly had a drinking problem. When when he wrote No More on the Wall, that was, it was a personal intervention. That was, <laughs> about, that was about the time where it's like, I'm, this and moonshine. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Ninth Doctor. I think it's bottles of something. I, I mean like a bottle of beer. You know, yeah. nothing on draft, but so maybe a maybe a stout, but not a Guinness. I don't think. Yeah, I, 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 probably I, I, one of those working class Northern British yeah. beers that we've never heard of. Uh, I don't know, like a brown ale, maybe. Yeah, a brown ale. Yeah, like a Newcastle's type thing. David Tennant. He just drink whatever is popular. <laughs> he's, yeah. a, he's a gin and tonic guy, isn't he? Again, something in the lighter, fruitier area. Yeah, I could see like a gin and tonic or or a, a sidecar. <laughs> Sidecar is a bit complex for David. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Appletini. An Appletini. <laughs> oh no, that's got to be a Matt Smith. Thing, right. Yeah, no, actually, uh, that is Matt Smith. I think I think Matt Smith would be a Dockery. A what? A Dockery. Oh, Dockery. Yeah. <laughs> Did you combine Doctor and Dockery? <laughs> I mispronounced Dockery. I'm sorry. But some weird thing with like a banana in it. <laughs> You know, daiquiris are unfairly maligned after uh, generations of sorority girls. I think. Yeah. I mean, Hemingway used to drink these things. They used to have a manly D- reputation. Yeah, I mean, of course, I don't think he put a banana in it. My parents were not big <laughs> cocktail people, but they would regularly, for parties, 
make a bunch of daiquiris. Daiquiris and Appletinis for him. Yes. So what have we got for Peter Capaldi? Something like like whiskey. Carrie's suggesting some Irish whiskey. Yeah. Although, uh, he's such a Scotsman again, though. It's got... It, 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 what drink did he pour but we didn't see him drink in his first episode? He's got oh, his hands yeah. on a glass, which is pretty provocative for Doctor Who. We never see him put it to his lips. Um, but it, it was a hard liquor, it looked like. Looked like scotch or whiskey to me. It's got to be scotch. He's 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 a Scotsman. So. Well, if he's like an old punk, might be just like vodka. He might actually do like stoly neat or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna be the hard stuff, and it's gonna be straight. Yeah. You just yeah. Boom down done. Yeah. yeah, he's not gonna be drinking the aged scotch that uh, that's a Vester McCoy. No, it's this like, would be. I don't have time for this. Just give me the shot. <laughs> You know? <laughs> I mean, he'd criticize it. But yeah, he'd, a, he'd keep drinking this it. This is appalling! <laughs> One more. <laughs> Whatever, whatever's cheap. We're out of doctors. Right. We're out of doctors. But we're not out of alcohol. <laughs> so, should we just keep extrapolating <laughs> future doctors? The David Warner doctor from yeah. Doctor Who Unbound is... The Schalke doctor is definitely a red wine guy. Oh, that's yeah, very that's, established. That's canonical. As canonical as uncanonical things can be. No, what would the master be? <laughs> Kahlua. You think he's Kahlua? <laughs> Kahlua, like Kahlua and coffee, just because it's like the blackest drink you can Blackest make. drink you can Don't judge me. <laughs> I do think he drinks like grasshoppers. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, the master drinking anything is hilarious. I don't know why. <laughs> Especially because I, I think of the burnt out husk of a master. <laughs> <laughs> you see the decrepit, burnt-out uh, Peter Pratt master at, like, the end of the bar. <laughs> and the bartender comes up wiping the glass. Ah, oh, what do you have? I will have your body! You know, or I don't know. <laughs> he does look like every guy at the end of the bar, doesn't he? The end of the bar is now a metaphor for the end of your regeneration cycle. <laughs> yeah. it does, it's kind of true. He'd insist that the bartender made him something called the Eye of Harmony. No, you take three parts <laughs> vermouth, 26 parts whiskey, and you put a maraschino cherry in it. And then you mix it in the near the advent horizon of a black hole. Oh, and then you get drunk and regale him with stories. <laughs> I once wore the sash of wrath on. <laughs> and now we're introducing a brand new round, Silence in the Library. Shh. It's because Tony loves us to shh into the microphone. <laughs> uh, in this round, we'll be going in-depth into a Doctor Who novel. Uh, today, we're talking about Alien Bodies by Lawrence Miles. And there's enough to talk about here that we're going to split it into two parts. And this is the first round. We're going to talk about the book in a spoiler light way because if you have not read this book, you should go out and read it because there's a lot of joy in discovering uh, the surprise elements. Uh, but for this first part of the round, we're going to talk a little about the history of Doctor Who novels and where this falls in that history. 
Yeah, uh, let's see if we can do it justice here. It's very complex, uh, but uh, we'll try to cover what we can. Of course, as most people know, when the TV show, when the classic television show was still going on, Target novels, Target books, had the license to produce novelizations of the TV shows, which they did, and did nearly all of the classic TV uh, adventures. There are only a few that they overlooked. They or they didn't overlook them, but they couldn't do them for one reason or another. Those were the Douglas Adams written ones because of there, there was some provision by which he was going to novelize his own stuff, but of course him being Douglas Adams and a uh, notorious procrastinator that never got off the ground. Plus he lifted elements for the Dirk Gently books from some of his Doctor Who scripts, and yeah. that was part of the issue as well. And he was also a best-selling author and was not terribly happy with the rate that Target was going to pay him. <laughs> yeah. So the upshot of that was that the Pirate Planet, City of Death, and Shada never got Target novelizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, neither did some of the more obscure Dalek stories like Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks and that was, and I think this is true, uh, that Terry Nation or later the estate of Terry Nation was so restrictive on the use of the Daleks that it all had to be personally approved by them. Eventually what will happen, and we'll get to this, um, Terry Nation or his estate picked the writer John Peel, not the disc jockey John Peel. Okay. I've, I've <laughs> never had that clarified yeah. for me, it's a, actually. It's a different person uh, as the only person who could write the um, Dalek novelizations. So he did eventually do, I, I believe he did Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks, but there were a few, like... I think Revelation of the Daleks, for some reason, was not novelized or novelized really late. Yeah, there's a few that got overlooked in that. But the the point being here is that they were almost entirely out of material by the time the original series ended. But they cut a deal with the BBC to produce new books using the Seventh Doctor and Ace, which they did. This is the... Uh, it's under the, the Virgin Books imprint, and they were called the New Adventures. You'll hear people talk about the New Adventures or the Virgin Books, and this is what they're talking about. Um, this was Peter Darville Evans, I believe, was the editor at the time, and he commissioned a lot of new talent, much of it from Doctor Who fandom at the time. There, A lot of the writers that wrote for the Virgin Books were people like Paul Cornell and Lance Parkin, who were uh, well-known figure Kate Orman, uh, well-known figures in Doctor Who fandom and had written lots of fan fiction and were active on... I suppose it's too early for... No, they would be on the message boards and yep. stuff uh, at the time. A lot of them knew each other, and a lot of them lived in London and would hang out personally so they they were there was a lot of cross fertilization and a lot of collaboration between these virgin writers so virgin produced a vast number of books uh, during which they did tons of uh, adventures with the seventh doctor and ace and they introduced a new companion called Benny uh, Bernice Summerfield known as Benny uh, whom we've joked about on this program before River Song is um, she's not a carbon copy of but she's a clear descendant of of Benny. Eventually, Virgin started producing past Doctor adventures, too. So, uh, with Tegan and Nyssa and the Fifth Doctor, Paul Cornell wrote a book called Goth Opera, and, um, oh, just any any number of books. 
However, uh, around about 1996, when the TV movie was coming out, BBC Books decided to pull the license for Doctor Who back into house and produce a line of Doctor Who books based on what they assumed, I suppose, was going to be a wildly successful <laughs> new television series of Doctor Who. Okay. So we all know that didn't happen, but the effect of it was that it shut down Virgin's capability to write Doctor Who stories. However, that did not stop their ability to publish books. They, they had by this time generated so many characters and planets and alien races and its own complicated continuity that they just continued the new adventures with Benny as the protagonist. And so you'll see these in used bookstores without the Doctor Who logo on it, but with just the N.A. logo. And they continued producing Benny books for a long time to come, and she's still a character that uh, Big Finish is making audios, audios around. All right. So BBC Books, now they're doing the license. They kick off the line with a novelization of the TV movie and then Terrence Dick's book, The Eight Doctors. But from there, uh, they start recruiting writers who had written for the Virgin books. Because, of course, there's a ready-made pool of writers who are already there. And how, uh, even though the BBC was determined to make a clean start, they were going to ignore the Virgin continuity completely, and they were going to start their own line of books with no reference to the stuff in the past, because the fact, the fact that they were hiring the same people to write the same sorts of stories meant that inevitably elements of the Virgin books started creeping into the BBC novels, to a greater or lesser degree, depending on who the writers are. I'm getting to our point. <laughs> Alien Bodies uh, is a book by Lawrence Miles written in 1997, shortly after the TV movie had started broadcasting. Lawrence Miles had previously written a new adventures book called Christmas on a Rational Planet, starring the Seventh Doctor and his companions Roz and Kriz. Uh, a very small number of elements from that book will show up in Alien Bodies in a more developed form. He also, at the same time when he was writing Alien Bodies, was writing a Bernice Summerfield novel called Down for, you know, the other, the other side of the equation. Um, and there are elements from Down that appear in this book, too. But remember that these are, at this point, supposed to be separate chronologies. So uh, the concept that Lawrence Miles develops here, which was not really picked up on by other writers, was that the Virgin novels took place in a bottle universe. It was its own universe in some type of fourth-dimensional bottle that existed in the universe of the Eighth Doctor, so it's a universe in a bottle inside another universe, and that these books exist in a bottle inside the television universe. All right, that bottle appears, by the way, in a later book by Lawrence Miles called Interference, which we're not going to be talking about today. Uh, this is, of course, completely at odds with the fact that other people are introducing references to Benny and uh, alien races that they've created, so the entire thing was slipping right from the beginning. But at this point, you can see Lawrence churning, moving his wheels, and trying to create a structure by which everything could be true, even though 
contradictions were going to um, were built into it. Uh, it. It's sort of like what Alan Moore would do, in or had done in things like Swamp Thing or Miracle Man. It's like if we assume that everything has happened the way that we've already established it as having happened in the previous comics, but we are going to go in a completely different direction. What sort of mechanism can we put in place to make that uh, to make that true? So this is a long-winded way of saying uh, that Alien Bodies is kind of a manifesto among other things it's this is going to be a new way of doing doctor who and this is how i think that we should be doing it and how lawrence miles thinks that uh, doctor who should be written is essentially better than it's ever been written before <laughs> having more concepts per page than it had ever <laughs> demonstrated before uh, and with a very quirky strange lawrence miles sensibility um, full of new concepts and new toys for people to work with in the BBC and the BBC books universe, some of which will get picked up and some of which will be ignored and many of which will be deliberately undone uh, as the books progress. It, it reminds me a lot of the British new wave of science fiction novels in like the late 60s, early 70s. Well, like Michael Moorcock was considered a part of that, but I'm not thinking of Moorcock specifically. I'm thinking of... <laughs> A writer almost no one's heard of called Barrington Bailey. <laughs> He's one of Moorcock's favorites. What, what, uh, yeah, Moorcock was way into him, but yeah, he, he his stuff is just crazy dense with things, and I and I saw it as kind of an outgrowth of, of that that particularly British school of literary science fiction. Some of the challenges reading Alien Bodies uh, is partly due to what I just described, which yeah. is that it's um, it exists at a particular moment in Doctor Who uh, where to attempt something new like this was possible, but kind of unwieldy. Uh, so looking back on it, it's it, it can often be confusing, the book can, both for its historical place, but also because of the idiosyncratic sensibility of, of Lawrence Miles himself. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that he's doing within it is filling it chock full of obscure references to the old show. Mm -hmm. So for every reference to something like the World Zones Organization or the World Zones Authority, which we know from Enemy it's, it's of the, the World. Enemy of the World, yeah. I, that jumped out at me pretty hard. There there are more even more obscure things like the planet Dronid or Drornid, which is made a joke of in the book because it was apparently well the joke is that the planet Dronid appears in the script for the unfinished story Shada. But the scenes that refer to it are, were never filmed. So only deep Doctor Who nerds who had, who had read that original script would have understood the reference to the planet in the first place, but it later appeared in some Doctor Who guide misspelled. It was droned in the script, and it's droned in one of the guidebooks, and so the characters who appear on the planet droned in Alien Bodies sometimes refer to it as Dronid <laughs> because of uh, an in-universe uh, mistake in some planetary gazetteer. So th this is the sort of deep nerd density going on. Yeah, it's full of nerdy references, but the brilliance of it is that he earns every deep cut by giving you a brand new, really exciting and enthralling concept. Um, yeah. So that's why it has raised itself above fan fiction status, because it adds so much while still loving everything from the past. And that's why I really enjoy it. Yeah, it's almost the opposite of fan service. Fan service is giving the readers something that they're going to go, ooh, oh, I love that because mm -hmm. I remember it. Here, 
you're unlikely to remember it. <laughs> and if you do remember it, it's like World Zones Authority, and you're probably not going to care about it very much, but it serves to texture the world yeah. uh, and really integrate it into Doctor Who continuity. But um, why don't we take a little bit of break, because I think your wife has something to say, Josh. <laughs> she always has something to say. <laughs> And now for round four, wonderful afunctionalism. This is our wild card, anything goes round, and today I'm talking to two very special guests. My wife of 18 years, Adrian, and my 11-year-old daughter, Miriam. Hello, Internet! Are we almost done? Almost. Anyway, I thought it was important to take a break from all the guy talk and get a female perspective on the Eighth Doctor. Which one is that? The really good-looking one. David Tennant? What? No. Your dad is better looking than David Tennant. Wait, that sounded almost like not a compliment. I was talking about Paul McGann. The weird one with the funny hair? You'll have to be a tad more specific. The one who fought the really gay master. You'll have to be a tad more specific. The one from the TV movie. And here's a fun fact. Back when your mom and I were first dating... Gross. The TV movie was the very first Doctor Who we ever watched together. I think that was the night I fell in love. Oh, me too. With Paul McGann. I couldn't wait to watch the next one. But then your dad told me the horrible truth. There was no next one. The TV movie was Paul McGann's one and only appearance as the doctor of my dreams. My ovaries were crushed. Not crushed enough, or I wouldn't be here listening to this drivel. You know, she's right, Adrian. We get it. You find Paul McGann extremely attractive. Can we talk about something else now? I mean, there's a lot more to the Eighth Doctor than just his looks. Like his voice. It's almost as pretty as his face. Do you know how many terrible Big Finish audios I've listened to just so I could hear that man whisper sweet techno babble in my ear? Hey, if I turn on Chimes of Midnight right now, will you stare deep into my eyes and lip-sync all of Paul McGann's dialogue? Is it too late to put me up for adoption? You know what? Let's forget about the TV movie and the audios for just a second and talk about the Eighth Doctor as a purely literary character. Wait, there are Eighth Doctor books? Yep, 73 of them. What? Even the Bible only has 66 books. What is wrong with you people? I might consider reading an Eighth Doctor book, depending on what picture of Paul McGann they use on the cover. You know, it's weird, but the Eighth Doctor books almost never feature Paul McGann on the covers. I don't know if it was a legal issue with Fox. Burn them! Burn them all! Okay. I guess that's all the time we have, and by time, I, of course, mean patience. So, Miriam, final thoughts on the Eighth Doctor. I like Peter Cushing better. Wow. Okay. Adrian? Sexiest doctor ever. Unless the 13th doctor turns out to be Idris Elba. Itchy elf butt? What? Idris Elba. He's a big, talented man actor who your mom and every other red-blooded woman on the planet loves to watch. Okay, I think we're done now. Have you seen Luther or The Wire? No. Can we watch him? I think those shows are a little adult for you, honey. Sure we can! Right now! I declare tonight, mother-daughter TV night! Yay! Let's go. Josh, can you make us some popcorn? Oh, and don't forget to scoop the litter box. You can pretend it's a time scoop, and all the cat poop is going to the death zone on Gallifrey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, very funny, very funny guys. All right, yeah. I will, I will do that for you, fine, but first I'm just gonna... Sit here, alone, and finish reading the collected Eighth Doctor Radio Times comic strips, because they, they are really great. The Doctor has an Ice Warrior as a companion, 
So, yeah. I wish I had a companion. So we're back with part two of our alien bodies discussion, which I guess we could call the Forest of the Dead, but we're not <laughs> going to. We're going to call it Silence in the Library, Brown Two. You know, so was Adrian a member of the Palmagan Estrogen Brigade? Um, no, not officially. No. <laughs> do you remember in, what that was? Though? I do remember what that was. That was like an early online Palmagan fan group of of the ladies. Well, yeah, that seemed so novel at the time. Like, oh, the doctor is kind of a sex symbol, but, you know, it's just the way it is. (laughs) Well, we should warn people before we get into this alien bodies discussion that unlike part one, we're going to go hardcore spoilers. And if you do have any thought of reading this book, I would skip this part of the podcast. Yeah, and please read the book. It would behoove you to read the book. It's really good, but you want to remain spoiler-free to enjoy it. Having said that, now let's spoil it. <laughs> spoil the hell out of this thing. Sure, we're going to assume that everybody listening to this has, has read the book by now. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Uh, but I got nothing to say. It's a spoiler. <laughs> it, Where it, do you start? Well, in a way, it kind of vaguely reminds me of, of some cyberpunk novels, and I think that's partly, again, because cyberpunk was sort of like the 80s reflection of, like, science fiction new wave stuff of the early 70s and late 60s which i'd kind of mentioned earlier it's also the comparatively near future setting of the like mid to late 21st century well i can see your cyberpunk thing um it doesn't feel like it's not but but the the focus of um biology as data yeah is is, that's pretty cyberpunk cyberpunky yeah yeah here your your body itself is somehow it, it can be decoded and it can be weaponized. Well, and it encodes experience, too, which is interesting. This concept of biodata, which they used, I think, in Deadly Assassin for the, the is the first reference to biodata. But here it's something other than memories and DNA. It's not genetics. It goes deeper than that. Time travelers somehow, when they're exposed to extreme experiences, these things somehow get encoded into them on a cellular level. And the doctor's been going around for so long that he has so much of that encoded into himself that even his corpse is extremely valuable to a whole bunch of different people and could potentially be turned into a universe-destroying weapon. Now that, by itself, is enough to build a book on. And that's just one of the many really interesting concepts here. And one of the things I I really liked about the way they handled the doctor's corpse as the subject of this auction is I think it's a really good way to sort of fetishize, seems a little strong, but how the new series makes the doctor this cosmic hero that everyone's so impressed by by pushing this into the future we get all the fun of that because there is mm-hmm. a certain nerdy fun from your hero becoming like just the holy crap ass-kicking cosmic being but we don't lose the current doctor then they, they meet the paul mcgann doctor and they're like you're the doctor <laughs> yeah. so we, we get the best of both worlds and, and that, that pseudo deity thing comes way down the road and we're never going to get there really or tell that story yeah. so I think it balances that better than the new series uh, yeah I think so too it's it's what it's asymptotical to use a mathematical term right you can get close, <laughs> closer and closer to it but you can never actually get there yeah. and it's by definition we're never going to see the war and that's sort of the reason why we never hear who the enemy is because they kind of hint like it's 
like another weird version of the Time Lords, kind of like how the Celestes are, are like a weird version of the Time Lords. That's that- an unclear part of it because it's un- I was un- I'm always unsure whether Lawrence Miles' imagination is kind of failing him there because the ways to delineate the many new concepts sometimes get blurred, right? Mm-hmm. There's those shadows with robes that people keep seeing in yeah. visions. As far as I can tell, there's sometimes the Celestis and sometimes they're the enemy. And they're at least described in similar terms. And, you know, the Celestis, who are conceptual beings, give the enemy technology to create the shift, which is another conceptual being. And the spirits that the faction operates with aren't too dissimilar to that either. So it's like, is it a failure of imagination, rare for Lawrence Miles, or is he hinting that there's some sort of future convergence of all of these things, That and that's what the enemy is? Who knows? He leaves it ambivalent enough that I feel it doesn't. It doesn't feel like a weakness. It feels like there's something more coming, and so that's some of the some of the joy of yeah. this book. That there's so much more to unpack down the road. He does go out of his way to say it's not the Daleks. It's yeah. something really dangerous. Yeah, and that's really interesting to see the Daleks, especially like post new series, positioned as like. No, not the Daleks, because they are they are the ultimate evil in the new series universe. Yep. There's nothing bigger, badder than the Daleks. And here we find out there is, there is the an unlikely race that's bigger and better than the Daleks, at least in this story, which is the Crotons, which is such a delight. It is, that, that yeah, literally, the last thing I was expecting to show up in this book, given, given everything else that's going on. One of the most brilliant things about the Crotons in this book, too, is that while Miles expands their powers in a way that you couldn't depict on the TV show. Yeah. He still keeps the stupid aspects of them in place. <laughs> their heads spinning around stupidly and all those things. So it's like it's it's both this more powerful, scarier Croton with the dopey Croton we remember from the 60s. And, and, and still the very one-dimensional 60s era Doctor Who alien of just like Everything is inferior. We will kill them. Yeah. Ah, you know, and how they speak even throws in a joke of one of the people at the auction. Go, can we get a translator? <laughs> I can't understand this guy. You, you get the sense of a of a a young talented writer really just going to town on an underused area of Doctor Who. Like yeah. what what territory hasn't been colonized by other Doctor Who writers by now? <laughs> the Crotons. Yeah. So he builds a giant you know lattice world and he makes them Tellurian-based and he gives them a whole culture and personalities and names that they call themselves. And here, this is my favorite part, you guys. This is so Lawrence Miles. He marries old bits of Doctor Who continuity by saying the Crotons evolved on a planet where a fascist capitalist race brought their robot servants to it and (laughs) then the Crotons modeled themselves after the robot servants. Those are clearly the Dominators and the Quarks. <laughs> Which is why the crotons sort of look like the quarks. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm less sure why the croton looks like a war machine later. They build themselves the they big do, boxy tank like bodies. They describe themselves and they look. They sound like the war machines. Yeah, I'm, I'm very. I'm not sure if that's just a joke. Well, and that's one of the problems with this. Not problem, but it's one of the difficulties with this book. Is that an inside joke or is that a legitimate? He's hinting at some sort of connection between these stories. He clearly is with the quarks and the and the crotons, but the war machine, I think, is, yeah, a, it is almost, a joke. Yeah, it almost comes so close to just, for me, like, collapsing like a house of cards with, like, oh, let me put this in, and 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 it, all, it, it never quite feels 
overstuffed. I, I didn't like how it felt to me like he kind of dropped the whole Marie thing. Well, like, Marie, let me just get rid of Marie. I, I can't. That's one thing too much. Like, yeah, yeah. He blew her up fairly early and yeah. then brought her in as a Deus Ex Machina toward the end. And it's such a wonderful concept a TARDIS that can its chameleon circuit can design itself to look like a human. Mm-hmm. It's clearly sentient in a way that was only hinted at in the old program. Mm-hmm. Oh, and when she becomes stuck as the 1960s policewoman, is it? <laughs> <laughs> awesome joke. <laughs> I forgot that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so yeah other questions that are left unresolved or hanging are who Mr. Quixote actually is it's a strong suggestion that he's Drax from really? the Armageddon factor at least I felt that way and a lot of people online feel that way too however it, it's got to be said that this this character is a nastier character than Drax is mm-hmm. yeah. um, with deliberately leaving Sam to die and stuff however Lawrence leaves himself this narrative out for anything that's out of character for anybody because the shift has been messing around Mm -hmm. with people's emotions and memories a little bit. So if people are acting a little bit strangely, that could just be the shift shifting around inside of them. So that leaves room for Quixote to be sort of anybody. And does the doctor really recognize him or doesn't he? Is that an implanted memory? But we say that the shift can't actually implant memories. It can only modify them a little bit. So the the insinuations that he genuinely knows this guy from somewhere, well, we don't know who. Yeah, we don't know if these are unwritten stories or mm-hmm. stories Miles plans to write or yeah. if they're veiled references to something. I'm, we I'm saw trying to remember like how, how they describe Quixote. He's described as like frog-like. Yeah, he's like a short squat guy, but it's also made explicit that he's wearing a different face than the last time that the doctor saw him. Oh, okay. They calls, say that specifically. Sam also calls him a reject from Only Fools and Horses, which I really enjoyed. Too. <laughs> and is he a wearing like a dirty reference? I I, I I I may be blurring this with something totally unrelated, but is it, is he described as like wearing like a plaid suit or something? He's a checked out. He's suit certainly lounge lizardy in some way. I don't yeah. know what he's wearing. I don't think he gets too specific. He describes describes him vague enough that you could easily fill in a checkered suit. Can I take a moment to just mention how much I love Lawrence Miles' names? Mr. Quixote, mm-hmm. Homunculet, Mr. Shift, the Celestis, and the Anarchitects. Uh, um, it's just invention the, all over the place. What the heck was the Croton's name again? Uh, e. Cobalt. E. Cobalt. <laughs> awesome. There's even Poor a man. passing reference to a Time Lord who got stuck in his own TARDIS because um, one of the Anarchitects redesigned it into an endless Mobius loop. Yep. And the, the, the Time Lord's name is Lord Ruthven Tracolixabaxel. <laughs> Which, um, I'm sure, as you all know, Lord Ruthven was the vampire created by Dr. Polidari based on Lord Byron, the first vampire in English language literature. So there's a little joke for you there. Let's take that connection. Pat is literally the only person I know. I'm now imagining Pat laughing his head off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the people at the Brian Lake Bowl looked at me really weird. Another interesting about this book is it's, I believe, the sixth novel in this Eighth Doctor series, and it's the first one that I remember where Lawrence Miles is really investigating and grappling with the character of the Eighth Doctor, because they have so little to go on. He makes a point out of saying the Doctor's not even used to this body. So he's sort of expressing the audience and the writer's 
curiosity about who is this guy, but he's putting it in the doctor's own head. He's not even sure. He's trying to well, like, do things that the old doctors do, trying to intimidate people. He doesn't know how to use his new face. And there's really a lot of exploring where can we go with this version of the doctor. Well, the thing that jumped out at me is like when the doctor gets really mad at Quixote, and then he's like, wait, I'm, I'm actually mad. Wait, why did... What? <laughs> like, when was the last time I got mad? When was the last time I was actually mad? You know, like... Um, that is how we which I thought was a reference to the Eighth Doctor generally being portrayed as the the calmest of the Doctors. Well, you know, like, wait, I'm actually angry. You know, what? <laughs> like, yeah, as Josh says, this is really early in the book's run. By the end... It's, it's interesting that the Eighth Doctor is the most purely literary invention of all of the Doctors. Yes. Because everything else uh, was based on a, a well-established character brought by Tom Baker or Peter Davison or whatever. Now, Sylvester McCoy wandered into strange territory because when he went off the air, the Virgin Books took his character in lots of interesting directions. But there was only literally a few minutes of Paul McGann in the TV movie that anybody had to work with. Yeah. And based on that, uh, well, in this book, went a long way toward defining that character, by the way. The character of the Eighth Doctor after Alien Bodies is kind of it's kind of established here what what he's like. He's naive, he's childlike, he's affectionate, he's always hugging people mm-hmm. in the later books. He's got a lot of that I don't understand how humans work that Peter Capaldi does, but in a much more lighthearted, cheerful way. Um, mm-hmm. not a sociopathic <laughs> way, uh, and you know when I when they finally convinced Paul McGann to do the audios, and I listened to things like Storm Warning and The yep. Stones of Venice, I was initially very disappointed because that was so much more of a conventional Doctor Who to my mind. I expected him to be more bubbly and more cheerful and more he was exuberant, bubbly and cheerful in Storm Warning. It seemed like a lot of writing writers were at war in those early big finishes to how to portray it. I also think from interviews, Paul McGann had a lot of ideas how he wanted to do it originally, but his he felt as he had to do it in a very specific he's way pretty, in the Fox movie. So He's pretty goofy in Invaders from Mars. He starts talking like a 1930s New York private eye. The only thing I remember about that one is that they had the CIA existing in the 1930s, and I just couldn't get over that. <laughs> <laughs> but back, to, error. Yes. back to alien bodies. Uh, so There are so many different versions of the Eighth Doctor's character. Yes. All playing with various aspects of the the TV movie, what they developed in the books, what we've seen in Big Finish, and now it's all just something it feels it feels like writers can pull from any one of those periods now, yeah. uh, depending on which audio you tune into. Well, now when you, you have Paul McGinn as the actor able to tie it together. Because yeah. there's something, well, obviously, but there's something that's centralizing about a character when you have a human being acting it out mm-hmm. on screen or, or on audios that it's more drifty in a book yeah. and especially a book series written by multiple authors over many many years it's hard when you read it to hear his voice i mean i remember reading this you know shortly after it came out and you would only seen the tv movie it was hard to even picture this doctor because yeah. he'd seen so little or hear him now it's interesting when i reread it for this podcast i could after so many years of big finish audios i could totally hear paul mcgann's voice doing these lines. If anyone from Big Finish is listening, they have adapted some of the new adventure novels. I don't know if it's a separate license. I would love to hear an audio adaptation. I can't even begin to picture what what an audio version of Alien Bodies would be. So wonderful. The E. Cobalt voice. so he he's able to do things in this book that push the envelope of what you should be able to do on Doctor Who, but he does it with uh, with great finesse. He talks about the death of the Doctor, 
Um, he talks about the, the future of Time Lord society. I mean, Homunculate is like the most interesting character to me. He's, oh, he's yeah. a Time Lord from the future, wanders around in a TARDIS, it's a lady. <laughs> Just, and he's fighting a but war. He's such a he's an angry, pissy little... But that's it's a super irritating mm-hmm. And then I think it's great when he feels so much love and horror over the near death yeah. of uh, Marie. Yeah, Marie. And in that scene, in the description of the couch coming out of her, which is on one level really funny and absurd, mm-hmm. but as it goes on, it starts to get horrific. If he didn't have that affection for Marie, he would be, I think, a totally loathsome character. Yeah. But that, that, that grounds him into a more recognizable human being for me something about like the modern series when it's and going on about the time war and stuff it always seems kind of weird to me that the time lords just seem to be like plain old regular soldiers with guns right here in this novel hints like what warp the time lords would actually be like which would be like on an insane scale marie is described as having weapon systems the size of small moons yeah <laughs> They also mentioned that most of the Time Lord Arsenal get wiped out in the opening stages of the war. So that, oh yeah, the that, hand of Omega is gone. Hand of Omega um, is gone. So that's that's some way of bringing the Time Lords down, even to a comprehensible scale where there might be a war that they could actually fight with yeah. some other enemy. And guys, we we haven't even talked about faction paradox. Oh my god, that's how much is in this book. Oh, yeah. wow. We're gonna have to spend a whole episode talking about faction paradox one of these they, days. They have some audios, right? Yep, they have six audios. They have quite a number of books. They even had a short-lived two-issue comic series. Oh yeah, we can talk a lot about them. Well, just grandfather paradox, the founder of faction paradox, taking a long-standing time travel joke and literalizing yeah. it, and suggesting by the name that it's somehow the Doctor. Yep. In the interest well, like of... That their masks are literally like the skulls of, what, like far future time Alternate lords. universe time Alternate lords. Who universe. clearly lost the vampire wars, lost right? the vampire and wars. And became part time lord, part bat. Yeah. yeah it's just Homunculus crazy. freaks out just by seeing them. It's like, their helmets are evil and paradoxical. Yeah, just the density of crazy stuff. Not only in that, book, you get like God. Twin Peaks references as well, and you get other other <laughs> that's total. A bit, that's a bridge too far for yeah. me. But yeah, that's yeah. In the interest of even-handedness, I do want to point out a few things that I think don't work quite so well. And I, the Twin Peaks stuff does seem to be a little self-indulgent for me. So all of the it's really? not what it seems. Yes, it, yes, it is. Uh, sometimes my arms bend back. Um, I think he could have gotten away with. The not what it seems. It was contextualized enough, but yeah. uh, sometimes my arms spin back. It's just like yeah, and it was it, no one can stop me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's just what that says. And it wasn't a weird dream vision of Cortez's, yeah. but still, it's a bit too much. There's a you know, there's also a bit of a too much of the ghost of Douglas Adams is haunting the prose at times. Yeah. There's a bit too much of that glib paradox and and jokiness, but it it doesn't go too far. No, and and, and in all fairness, Douglas Adams is a legitimate part of Doctor Who's DNA. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. if you're gonna if you're gonna be go under there, somebody's shadow, it's yeah. okay to be under him. Uh, there's a little bit of the adolescent naughtiness that was inherited from the Virgin books. Mm-hmm. The brother Menjul specifically thinks the word bitch a lot yeah. and ponders sexually assaulting the lieutenant at one point, which is like an He's the most tonally off of, yeah. of the book. He's but, supposed to be like the most loathsome. Yeah, and it's character. also you know it's, it's kind of a stereotype. He's what from Little Sao Paulo. He's a gang, yeah, he, gang he, member he, and he's, stuff. He's, a, he's some Latino gang kid. Yeah, so it's yeah. it, it it's a bit abrasive. You know, it's not yeah. 
racist exactly, but it's stereotypical, and it's, um, and I don't know that it would be better off not there, but I think they could have uh, refined that character a little bit more. Uh, and there's a few things like the gross embryo defense system with the alien God, bodies goes on up. a bit long for me. Yeah, that, 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 that was the point, the one point in the novel where it seemed to actually drag. Yeah. That just that went on and on. I was like, get back to the chess game and the Brigadoon circuit and the yes. faction paradox people. That's great stuff. Oh, I love that, by the way. The, the delayed answer to, you see the chess game with the general and the doctor, and he smashes through the window and falls to his death from the skyscraper, yep. and then the general looks out, and of course he's not there. So then later, a chapter or two later, you see it from Sam's point of view where... Uh, He's parked the TARDIS vertically on a skyscraper <laughs> and gone out with a grappling hook to get up there. And he had set the computer model to check the trajectory of a falling body from a particular and it's window. described like a like an early '80s video game yeah. graphics. He <laughs> <laughs> keeps missing and resetting until he gets it right. <laughs> He knew from the moment he went up there, he's going to be jumping out the window and into the TARDIS doors. <laughs> because we've talked about this forever, and I could oh, talk about this for another hour, but we gotta we got to wrap it up. I, I can't let the discussion go, though, without pointing out the David Bowie reference. <laughs> Loath, of course not. Loathing the Alien is one of the chapter yeah. titles. So that always gives me a smile, too. Uh, but... Final thoughts on alien bodies? It's probably going to be, now that we've put the ice it. on this, <laughs> it's going to be a touchstone, I'm sure, for future podcasts. It, 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 it's one of the four or five Doctor Who novels that every Doctor Who fan should read at some point. Absolutely. It's my favorite, along with Kim Newman's Time and Relative, it's my favorite book. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I would have said Human Nature before we read it again for this podcast, uh, but it didn't hold up quite as well as I, as I remembered. I still like it, but Alien Bodies takes the spot for me. The best thing about this entire book is the uh, the Raston the Raston. lap dancers. <laughs> Just because you imagine them in those silver bodysuits doing doing lap dance moves with this <laughs> fast moves. <laughs> On your lap. It's like when he, when he, when he brings in the Roston robots, I'm just like, oh, for God's sake, Miles. <laughs> and E. Croton is like, danger! Smash! <laughs> and he kills them all. <laughs> and that's our podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Join us next time when we'll be kicking off an eight-part series of podcast episodes focused on the Brigadier, Nicholas Courtney. Since... The title of our podcast is taken from a Brigadier line. We thought it was about time to take a good, long, hard look at the Brig from all his eras of Doctor Who. TV appearances, spin-off appearances, audio appearances. We're going to take a look at a lot of them. But we start next episode with Nicholas Courtney's first appearance in Doctor Who alongside William Hartnell. Not as the Brigadier, but as a proto-Brigadier. You guessed it, the Daleks Master Plan. And so it will be an all-Daleks Master Plan episode. <laughs> because so. the Dalek Master Plan ain't short. <laughs> Twelve parts. <laughs> Plus a prologue part. Until then, I'm Joshua. I'm Kelvin. And I'm Pat. And we're saying... Hi, I'm Kelvin. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And this is Get Off My World, a Doctor Who podcast by three men of a certain age 
who love to talk about our favorite show, and we try our best to love the new series, too. And, uh... That was the most enthusiastic <laughs> introduction we've done on this show. Really? <laughs> he can't use a table mic. That's like, yeah. He's like, he's oh. like an old-time newscaster. Well, none of us. Put down the cigarettes and... Edit Jim Beam. I'm bored. Call the ships at sea. Good morning, America. <laughs> well... <laughs> Okay, should I do it? I'll do it. I can do it over. Yeah, yeah. Let's try, try it one more time. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I didn't think it was that awful. Okay.